0: We began our study in 2 Timothy last Sunday. This is a letter that was written after 1 Timothy. We don't know how long after. It was written for Timothy, but unlike 1 Timothy, in which others are sort of reading over his shoulder, I believe that this is a very personal letter. It sounds much more personal in its tone as Paul writes to Timothy. But there is a direct connection between these two letters. In the next to the last verse of 1 Timothy, Paul says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. And as we will see today in verse number 14, we hear almost the exact same words. In this very personal letter, Paul gives a series of charges to Timothy, which I believe also apply to us. But we might be uh, tempted to excuse ourselves, um, which is wrong. I'll come back to that later. The letter begins as most letters in the ancient world did. The person who is writing is mentioned first, and then the person who is addressed is mentioned next. Um, As I said, this letter is much more personal, and so we're given more personal information, such as for the first and only time we are told the name of Timothy's grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. But rather than review everything we looked at last week, I want to focus on one aspect, and that is the place of the historical narrative In essence, as Paul begins this letter, he tells a part of Timothy's story, or better, he reminds Timothy of his story. If you look at verses 5 and 6 here in chapter 1, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And then if you look at verse verse number three, Paul mentions in part a part of his own story, I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did. Uh, Paul is very clear that he is Jewish. I mentioned last week, I've mentioned before, a, a recent book by Douglas Rushkoff called Present Shock When Everything Happens Now. And I just want to deal with this a bit. He describes present shock in the preface to his book. He says, we are not approaching some Zen state of an infinite moment, completely at one with our surroundings, connected to others, and aware of ourselves on any fundamental level. Rather, we tend to exist in a distracted present. When forces on the periphery are magnified and those immediately before us are ignored, our ability to create a plan much less follow through on it, is undermined by our need to be able to improve our way through any number of external impacts in the here and now. We end up reacting to the ever-present assault of simultaneous impulses and commands. In other words, we live almost in sort of an eternal present moment with little thought of the past and certainly none of the future. I would argue that living when and where we do, this is the difficulty. This is the temptation we face as God's people. To keep the faith alive, I think, is more difficult in that regard. And to pass it on to the generation is something perhaps we don't even think about because we're so busy living in the here and now. Rushkoff points to five things in which the present shock manifests itself. And the very first is narrative collapse. He acknowledges that in the past, narratives have served their purpose, that our knowledge of history helps us put the present in perspective. He says, we understand where we are in part because we have a story that explains how we got here. Aristotle, in fact, said that when the storytelling in a culture goes bad, the result is decadence. That is, when people no longer tell their stories, the result is, in fact, deterioration especially of moral and ethical culture, but also decay and degeneration. And yet for all that, Rushkoff says that storytelling is no longer a part of our culture. And like it or not, we are a part of this culture. We breathe its air. And so even for us as God's people, the historical narrative of our lives can begin to be seen as unimportant or insignificant. Instead, like many reality TV shows, we edit from all that has been recorded and cobble together a program rather than a story. I don't know if you watch reality TV. I try to avoid it. But apparently there are cameras that are on 24-7, but you're watching a show for one hour, which means that the directors or whoever picks those parts that they want and they put together. And it's not a story as much as it is a show or a program. I think in turning away from the place of story, we, even as God's people, turn away from how God conveys truth in Scripture. And we lose any sense of an arc of past, present, and future. Like everybody else, we are sort of frozen in the present moment and can't see beyond that. We may want to forget aspects of our past, so that's why we'd rather live in the present. We'd rather fragment certain aspects of our past, because no one wants to completely forget their past, but they're sort of juicy tidbits from the past that we want to put together. And so we recreate a life, a history of ourselves, that we want to pass on to other people. Paul does not do that. You may remember that in 1 Timothy 1, he said, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who believe on him and receive eternal life. Paul did not wallow in the sinfulness of his past. I think people see it that way. I don't. But rather, he saw God's grace in his life. I think that's what he wants Timothy and us to see as well. In this letter... Paul gives a series of charges to Timothy. And I believe that these charges apply to us. We may attempt to excuse ourselves and say, well, yeah, but you don't know. I'm reminded of uh, the comedian George Lopez, in which he talks about his abuela, his grandmother. And one time she says to him, porque you don't know my life. And you might say to me, Damon, you don't know my life. You don't know what I have been through. And that may, in fact, be the case. But God does know your life, and he has poured out his grace on you, not only in the past and not only in the present, but he will in the future as well. We may find ourselves, as part of this culture, thinking in terms of perceived disadvantages. You don't know the family that I grew up in. You don't know the church I grew up in. You don't know the things that I've experienced, that people have done to me. You don't know the things that I have done. And so, if we're not careful because of where we live, rather than thinking of being a Christian as something that is a story, a narrative, with a past, present, and future, we think in terms of moments of spiritual experience. I think in some traditions it's called the mountaintop experience, that perhaps for much of their life people are sort of you know, in the doldrums, but... They went to church one day, they heard a sermon, or they went to a meeting and something happened, and they had this wonderful experience, and then it's back to the doldrums again. And so for them, their their Christian life is not a story, but rather a series of spiritual experiences. If that is how we think, then what Paul has to say to Timothy will mean nothing. And in fact, our time together would have been in vain. I pray by God's grace that will not be the case that by his Spirit we will come to see that what Paul tells Timothy applies to us as well. So let's consider the first charge that Paul gives to Timothy. It's found in verses 13 and 14. What you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. This charge has two parts, or two imperatives. First of all, keep, in verse number 13, what you have heard from me. And then, in verse 14, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. So the first part of the charge is found in verse 13. And from the ESV, follow the pattern of sound words you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The word sound, in this context, means healthy. That is to say, What Timothy heard from Paul were healthy words. By the way, just a side note, the word that Paul uses here is what we find time and time again in the Gospels, that Jesus would heal somebody and then they would be sound. They would be healthy. They might have been maimed or diseased and Jesus heals them and now they are sound or healthy. In the same way, the Christian faith is healthy teaching, sound teaching. It consists of healthy words. As Paul describes what he passed on to him, it's healthy words that he gave to him that were given as a pattern. What does Paul mean by this? I think what Paul intends is that he himself was an example or a model. Because oftentimes when we hear pattern, at least for me, I think of something inan- inanimate, you know uh, something that's written down versus something that's lived out. So Paul was a model of sound teaching, and what Timothy heard from him were sound words. This is what he is to keep. By the way, this is very similar, at least to me, to what we hear in 1 Corinthians 11.1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So Paul's living, Paul's teaching, are to be Timothy's guide and his rule. He is not to debark. To depart from them, he is to follow them, he is to hold fast to them. And he is to do so with love, or with faith and love in Christ Jesus. We saw when we were looking at the principles uh, in 1 Timothy, that it is not important simply that we do what is right, but how we do it is equally important. In 1 Timothy 5, the principle is do the right thing, but know that how you do something is important. And so Paul says that we must take care not to show favoritism or partiality. We are not to be hasty in doing the right thing, even if it is the right thing. We should not go beyond what is written and we should not come to conclusions based on mere observation. Here in our passage, Paul tells Timothy and us, if we are listening, that we are to do what is right with faith and love in Christ Jesus. As Paul, or as Timothy lives out what he has seen in Paul, what he has heard in Paul, his life is to be marked by faith and love in Christ Jesus. Now if we're not careful, these would just be words. Nice Christianese language, you know, spiritual words. But think a moment. Timothy is a believer. He is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, faith and love, which mark the Lord Jesus, are to be part of his life. They are to be essential. They are to be vital parts of that life. The second part of the charge is guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. As I mentioned before, this ties 2 Timothy to 1 Timothy. Because in 1 Timothy 6.20, we read, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. But it's also, verse 14 is also connected to what Paul just wrote in verse number 13. So we have the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. They are now described as the good deposit that was entrusted to you. What is this good deposit? It is the gospel. It is the truth of Jesus Christ. It is a treasure. It is good. It is noble. It is precious. By the way, that is the one difference between the passage in 2 Timothy and the one in 1 Timothy. Is Here in 1 Timothy, he describes it as a good deposit, that he is to guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to him. Jesus had entrusted it to Paul, and now Paul entrusts it to Timothy, and Timothy entrusts it to others, and that is how it has come down to us centuries later. He commands Timothy to guard it. He is to guard it so that it is not lost or damaged. The word that Paul chooses Is used of guarding a palace against marauders or possessions against thieves. As we saw in first Timothy, Timothy was in Ephesus and it was in Ephesus that elders of the church in Ephesus were the ones causing the problems. They were the ones who were teaching false doctrine. They were the ones who were damaging the church. And so the first charge to Timothy is to guard it. Don't let it be taken away. Don't let it be damaged. We will see in a moment in verse number 15 that Paul stands alone in Asia. If you look at verse 15, you know how that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. Well, how can Paul expect Timothy to do what others have failed to do? That is to guard the gospel. Well, he says, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You see, on his own, Timothy could not do this. On our own, we cannot do this. Should never lose sight of this. We should not imagine that we are self sufficient that we can do this thing that we can in fact guard the gospel on our own. It is with the help of the Spirit who lives in us and then, at the end of the chapter, verses fifteen through eighteen, uh, we have what I call this in my heading it 's called History Matters. look if you would in verse fifteen. you know th- that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the house of, household of Onesiphorus, because he has refreshed me and not, was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well how, in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus." Now, one might view this as inefficient and almost unnecessary, but Paul does not. As one commentator put it, at first sight, this section seem, may seem irrelevant to the appeal that surrounds it. It lacks any exhortation to Timothy. Its context seems to have little in common, or its content seems to have little in common with its context. Nonetheless, as with other such digressions in these letters, this section is not without purpose, and I completely agree. It begins by describing Paul's situation in Ephesus, which Timothy knows about, but we don't. Okay, Everyone in the province has deserted him. We don't know why everyone deserted him. Perhaps it was because of his incarceration. Um, perhaps they thought that the Christian cause was lost. We don't know who Phygelus or Hermogenes were. But the fact that Paul mentions them Uh, would suggest that they were ringleaders in this desertion, that they had abandoned the faith and taken others with them. What we can infer is that their turning away from Paul was, in fact, a disavowal of his apostolic authority. See, Paul said, I'm an apostle. The Lord Jesus gave me the gospel, and I am handing it on to you. And these men and their followers, by turning away, basically said, we don't believe you. We don't believe that Jesus gave you the truth, the gospel, We will have it or we will seek it on our own. The pain of this, I think, is hard for us to imagine. But if we read from Acts 19, we might begin to get a sense. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took his disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Tremendous evangelism. The gospel goes out, and we are told later in chapter 19, many, in fact, believe. Now they have turned away from the gospel. By the way, we see this in the life of Jesus as well. I don't know if you remember, but in the Gospel of John, when Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, you go back a bit, he says that you are slaves, you were born into slavery, and they're like, no, we're not, you must be insane. If you go back a few verses, you find that the ones to whom Jesus is speaking are those who believe in him. They're not the Pharisees. They're not the bad guys, if you wish. Those who put their faith in Jesus, at a certain point, turn away from him. And this is what had happened in Asia. There is an exception, however. A man from Asia named Onesiphorus. He had taken care of Paul in Rome. He was not ashamed of Paul's chains. That is, he's a uh, a prisoner in chains. He's not ashamed of his status. When he went to Rome, he sought hard. He looked out until he found Paul. He had also helped Paul in Ephesus. So this is a man who has a tradition of helping the apostle Paul. And Paul, in this brief passage, prays twice that the Lord would show Onesiphorus' mercy. Why tell Timothy what he already knows? Because history matters. The gospel and all that it entails does not happen in a vacuum. The gospel is not simply a matter of information, content, or facts. The gospel is something that is to be lived out. This is what Paul charges Timothy to do. This is what Paul has entrusted to Timothy. I mentioned this before. You may wonder, I know that I have, about my emphasis on narrative and history. Is this just because it's my chosen field of study? I don't think so, though I certainly lean in that direction. Rather, I find it to be something that is missing in the church. And in light of Rushkoff's idea of present shock, I'm convinced it's something that has infected the church, the church at large. I mentioned this last week in Philippians 3. Paul wrote something that I've struggled with over the years, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. As I said, I've struggled with this idea of forgetting what is behind, but if you look at the context, what Paul is talking about is his uh, ancestry, that he was born uh, from the tribe of Benjamin, the people of Israel. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He had nothing to do with this. This is something that was done to him. And then, but he did actively uh, keep the law in regard to the law. He was a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. These are the things that Paul has forgotten. Well, Obviously, he hasn't forgotten them because he's writing about them years later to the Philippian Christians. But what he has in mind is a runner who is in a race, who is looking toward the end of the race rather than the beginning. Because if he looks back, he may, in fact, be distracted from getting to where he's going, and that is the finish line. Those who live in a culture of present shock may actually find this notion attractive. Forgetting the past. Forgetting the ugly things. Those embarrassing things. You know those things when you're, maybe you're by yourself or even in a crowd but you're not talking and then suddenly an event of your life comes to mind and you just sort of flinch. You're just like, I can't believe I did that. The shameful things in our past. So when Paul says forgetting those things that are behind, people are like, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I, I want to do that. But I don't think this is what Paul has in mind. We are to remember. We are a people of remembrance. That's why we worship on Sunday. We remember the Lord's resurrection. We've had the Lord's Supper today. We remember him. But in our remembering, we must be careful not to dwell on the past. But rather, we are to give thanks for what God has done in our life and not dwell on the dark moments the personal failures, the times of loss and grief, or what others have done to you. How are we to view our past, our stories, our histories? In this culture of present shock, the answer would be as a series of fragments that we cobble together to form a story, like a reality TV show. Now, we're human, so we can't remember everything, can't remember everything that's happened in our lives, but we are not to sort of remember our story in a way that is attractive to us. Like you're preparing your resume, your CV, or you're going on a job interview, or you're going out on a blind date. You want to put your best face forward. If you look back at verse number 12, here in 2 Timothy 1, in the second part of the verse, Paul writes... Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. In verse 14, Paul writes, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. You see there, there's an entrusting. Paul has entrusted something to God and he is now entrusting the gospel, which was given to him, to Timothy. I'm convinced The way that we view verse number 12 will inform the way we look at verse number 14. What did Paul, in fact, entrust to God? I would say it is his whole being, who he is. Every aspect of him, he has entrusted it to God. But if we view ourselves as a patchwork of fragments that we have put together, and then we come to verse number 14, I'm convinced that's exactly how we'll see the gospel. We will not see it as whole, as holistic, but as a combination or a collection of verses or principles or ideas that we put together. If you think about it, that's the way many Christians today view the Bible. And I'm grateful for the verses, you know, the division so we can find things, but in many ways it's, it's, It's brought as much damage, I think, as it's brought good because now people only think in terms of individual verses and not books or not the Bible as a book itself. The gospel, the truth, is something that is to inform and transform every area of our lives. If we do not think this way, then what we will keep alive in our lives and pass on to the next generation will not be the gospel, but in fact will be cobbled together. It will be like a patchwork quilt. It will not be whole. It will be the things that we liked, the things we wanted to remember, and little else? It will in fact not be sound words or healthy words, but the words of our own choosing. The sound gospel was entrusted to Timothy. We should embrace that sound gospel. We should accept this charge that Paul gives us to guard the gospel. But again, you may say, you don't know my life, Damon. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I've done. And indeed, I may not know your life. And without sounding cold or harsh, I don't need to. God does. And I trust that by God's grace, what you have entrusted to him is every aspect of who you are. Your past, your present, and your future. This is the call of the gospel. But again, I think because of when and where we live, oftentimes the gospel is seen more in a more fragmentary way. That do you have a problem in your life? The gospel will take care of that. It will cure that. Do you have this difficulty? God will take care of that. Rather than the gospel says, come unto me, all you who are burdened, I will give you rest. That we are to cast all our cares on him because he cares for us. The God that we worship is the God who made us, the God who sustains us, and he is the God who loves us. When we come to understand this, then the gospel will be seen as treasure, not as a band-aid, not as a cast for a broken arm, but as, as that which gives life itself. We will come to see the treasure of the gospel, and its fullness will be ours. I'm convinced it already is ours, but we have failed to appreciate it because we tend to think in bits and pieces. We don't like to think about the past because there are painful things back there. And we don't like to think about the future because we don't know what's going to happen there. And so we choose just to be here and hope for some type of wonderful spiritual experience from time to time to keep us going God's grace has been with us every moment of our lives even before we became the children of God, God's grace was with us this is the gospel and we are called to put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who has revealed God the Father to us He committed this truth to the apostles. They pass it on to others. And here we are centuries later, we have that same gospel. We are to guard it so it not be taken from us, but also so that it not be damaged and become less than what God intends. And by God's grace, as Paul says to Timothy, with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives within you, we will guard it. We will live it. We will speak it. It will be the truth. Let's pray together. Father, I suppose that every generation of your people have had different struggles that faced, different temptations. They've lived in different cultures, living when and where we do seem to have little appreciation for the past or even for a story, a narrative. Something with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Something with a past, a present, and a future. And it has infected us. It affects the way we view the gospel. It even affects the way we view our salvation, what we have committed to you. So in some ways, we have committed part of our beings, our lives, to you. But other things we've put away, perhaps shameful, things we don't want other people to know. They don't need to know. But you already know all these things. And in your great love, in your great grace, you have saved us. And not just our souls, but every part of our being. And not just in this moment. In the past, in the present, and the future. May we see that this is the gospel, and may we see that we are to guard it. With the help of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, may we keep it from being damaged by the culture around us, and by our own sinfulness. May we keep it alive in this generation, and pass it on to the next generation. I thank you that you called us together today to worship you, that you have gathered us, you have remembered us. I ask that you would watch over us in the coming week, uh, tomorrow being a holiday, remember the sacrifice made for us. We don't know what this next week will bring, but you do. You've already prepared the way. and May we trust you. Now, as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. As they always have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.